Nick, I want to welcome you here to Family Bible Church as we enter into a new season. Two weeks ago, we finished our series in the book of Habakkuk called Hope in the Dark. It was all about trusting in God even in the midst of difficult times, knowing that he's in control of those things, trusting that God is going to use those things for good. That even as we struggle and as we lament, God is still good and can still be worshipped as we put our hope and our trust in him. Well, both before and after Habakkuk's time, God used various prophets and leaders to speak to the nation of Israel. People like Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Ezra, Nehemiah, Jonah, to name a few. One of the earlier prophets was a man named Isaiah. And around the year 700 BC, Isaiah wrote these words. He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This prophecy was written about 700 BC, but imagine waiting for it to be fulfilled. Imagine waiting in the darkness. Waiting for the light to come. Fast forward, the last person that God spoke to Israel through was the prophet Malachi around 430 BC. Nearly 300 years after Isaiah had written those words, God speaks to Israel through Malachi, but still no glimpse of the light. And then after he speaks to Malachi, nothing. Nothing was heard from God for more than 400 years, nothing but silence. Imagine waiting 400 more years in the silence and in the darkness. Would the light ever come? Would hope ever come? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then, finally, 700 years later, that glimmer of hope, that small light appears. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. That light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to every person was coming into the world. Now this is, of course, speaking of Jesus. As we enter into this Christmas season, we remember, we celebrate the birth of Jesus as he came to this earth as a newborn baby. There's a worship song that many of you may be familiar with called Waymaker. The chorus is very simple as it repeats some of the identities of who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Waymaker, that he is the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. My God, that is who Jesus is. Imagine waiting in that darkness for hundreds of years, waiting in the silence, yearning for hope, waiting for God to respond, waiting for him to keep his promises of a Savior, a Messiah. Will hope ever come? Will he ever come? But God keeps his promises. He's a promise keeper. Jesus is the light in the darkness, come to bring light into the world and life into the world. The bridge of that song goes like this. It says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. 
You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. All those years, Israel was waiting and wondering. God was working in the background. He wasn't sleeping. He didn't go on vacation. He hadn't abandoned them. He didn't just decide one day to stop loving them or caring about them. He wasn't disinterested in this world he'd created all of a sudden. God was working in the background, preparing for the right moment for salvation to arrive. And then he chooses one of the most unlikely of people to bring that about. As we enter into this Christmas season, we're taking some time together on Sunday mornings to turn our eyes upon Jesus in this season. We're going to be looking at the Jesus story from different perspectives of various characters throughout the, the Christmas story. Looking at the story through their eyes of how they chose to turn their eyes upon Jesus. And I was struck this week as I was thinking about, uh, as I was setting up a nativity scene, I'm sure many of us have probably done that in the past week or two, most nativity sets, all of the characters are facing one direction. They're all pointing in. They're all facing Jesus. All of their eyes are turned upon Jesus. So how can we in this season turn our eyes upon Jesus? What can we learn from these characters in this story? And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 for the most part today. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there or on your devices, Luke chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at a particular character today who plays an instrumental part in this story of Jesus' birth. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered, may it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. This morning we're going to be taking a look at the Christmas story through the eyes of Mary. From her perspective, how she sought to turn her eyes upon Jesus in this time. And so put yourself in Mary's shoes. She's just a young woman going about her business. Scholars believe she likely would have been somewhere between 12 and 16 years of age at this time. That was common age for Jewish women in that day to get married. And so she's, she's pledged to be married. She's engaged to, to Joseph. And she's just going about her business, whatever she's doing that day. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up and starts talking to her and tells her that she is going to have a baby. But this isn't just any baby. She is going to become pregnant with the Messiah, 
the Son of God, the promised one. And in that moment, her first question is, how can this be? Like, uh, uh, excuse me, um, Mr. Angel Gabriel, sir, uh, I know, like, I want to believe you, and I I know that you're telling me I'm going to have a baby, but um, don't you know how that works? And how will this be since I'm a virgin? And how, how am I going to have a child? I'm not married yet. But this happened to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah 700 years prior when he had said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. We'll call him Emmanuel. This was done to not just fulfill prophecy, but to also show the miraculous, extraordinary nature of God. So how will this be? Gabriel tells her it is going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit who will come upon her stating that nothing is impossible with God. And then he uses the example of her relative Elizabeth, who was said to be barren and is now pregnant. And we're not going to go back and read this whole story, but earlier in Luke chapter 1, we see the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the miraculous conception and birth of John the Baptist. So Zechariah was John's father. He was a priest, and Elizabeth was his mother. She was a relative of Mary's. And um, they have this really crazy encounter, again, with the angel Gabriel, where he appears to Zechariah, and even though they're old and they're past childbearing years, they're said to be barren, they are told that they're going to have a son. Now, there was a dishonor that came, particularly in that culture, that in, in that day and age, with being barren, being unable to have children. It was widely considered and believed that you did something to deserve that that you warranted that for some reason because of your actions, your sins, that God made you that way. But as we see throughout Scripture time and time and time again, there are so many examples of how God uses situations like this one where all hope seems lost. And he does something incredible. He does something miraculous. In this case with Zechariah and Elizabeth, in John chapter 9, Jesus says, this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in your life. It's all about giving God the glory and seeing something miraculous happen. Other examples in Scripture, we see Abraham and Sarah in their old age having their promised son Isaac. We see Jacob and Rachel having their sons Joseph and Benjamin. We see Hannah having her son Samuel and so many other examples. So what's special about this particular one? Well, long story short, Angel Gabriel shows up to tell Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to have a son, and they're going to name him John. And Zechariah responds really, really well. He says, how will this be? And then because of his disbelief and his doubt, he's stricken mute for the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Nine months, as a priest, couldn't speak. Nine months, just like that. Because of his disbelief, his doubt, and what the angel had told him. Now, I don't know about you, but if an angel showed up and told me something, I feel like I'd be inclined to believe them. Except that in this particular case, Zachariah is questioning what the angel is telling him because of his own physical limitations of his and his wife's age. I probably would do the same if I were in that situation. And so he is stricken mute because of his disbelief and his doubt. However, when Gabriel appears to Mary and she asks, How will this be? Not only is she not punished for it, she's not stricken mute or anything of that nature. She's given an answer to the question. How will this be? 
So how is Mary's question, how will this be different from Zachariah's? Because Zachariah's question was fueled by doubt and disbelief, but Mary's was fueled with trust and belief. She is trusting God. And she's asking a very genuine question that is a a very legitimate question to ask. Angel, how is this possible? This is not even possible. What are you telling me? This is not possible. But nothing is impossible with God. Mary responds to this news with trust. She believes in what God is doing. She accepts God's plan and his will in the unknown. She calls herself the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. God, I trust you. I trust in what you're doing. Can you imagine having that news, that bomb dropped on you all of a sudden, something that's not even physically possible in the first place, let alone the fact that you're told that the child you're going to have isn't just any ordinary baby, it's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. I mean, talk about uh, stressful parenting and high expectations, and the child has not even come yet. Crazy expectations. He is the promised Messiah that Israel has been waiting for for centuries. And you have been chosen to bring him into life in this world. So as any wise person in a time of crisis or uncertainty would do, Mary retreats to someone wiser than herself, her relative Elizabeth. And that's where our story picks back up in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Mary believed that what God had said to her would be accomplished. Now, for those of you who have been pregnant, you've probably experienced your baby moving around in the womb. And that's not something I personally have experienced on my own, but I have experienced that with my children, with my wife, Elsie. And I don't know if there's any research to back this up. It might just be purely anecdotal. But something that Elsie and I have noticed is that our daughter, Finley, her personality and her disposition in the womb and out of the womb actually mirror each other pretty well. I don't know if anybody else has had this experience with their kids. So when we were pregnant with, with Finley, and Elsie was around large crowds of people or loud environments, Finley was quiet. She was not active. She was not moving. And then as soon as Elsie would go somewhere quiet, it was like she'd start moving, she'd start kicking, all of those things. And now out of the womb, she tends to be a bit more quiet and reserved in large crowds or loud environments around lots of people. And she just kind of sits back and observes and takes it all in. And then when she is in her places of comfort, she is much louder and more talkative and more active. Meanwhile, our son, who's going to be born soon, has been incredibly active and moving the entire time, which makes us really nervous for when he's born because we're in big trouble. But it's a special thing, feeling that baby move. Whether you've experienced that for yourself or, or somebody else, maybe it's been your own child, maybe somebody else's. As soon as Mary walks into the house, mind you, she's very newly pregnant. She just found out this news, and she went straight to Elizabeth. She walks in, and baby John, in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy. 
He doesn't know that Jesus just walked in. He's still in the womb. How would he know? But he leaps for joy, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Just the entrance of this tiny, tiny little brand new fetus is enough to not only fill a grown woman with the Holy Spirit, but also cause this unborn baby to leap for joy and to submit to the lordship of his Savior, Jesus. How amazing is that? And as if that's not enough, something that I was coming across as I was studying this week that I had never considered with this story before. Mary didn't tell Elizabeth that she was pregnant. The Holy Spirit did. Mary didn't tell Elizabeth that her baby was going to be the Messiah. The Holy Spirit did. And so the extraordinary in the midst of ordinary just continues to take hold here as we see this amazing, this whole family, these relatives of all that's happening with John the Baptist, his uh, whole story with Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and now being pregnant with the Messiah. And she walks in and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately she knows you're pregnant and it's the Messiah, and it doesn't matter that you're not married yet because I know that this is of God, and John is just leaping for joy because he's just so excited to meet his cousin, right? Amazing. So, so cool. We all have high hopes for our kids. Imagine having that family, Jesus and John the Baptist as cousins, right? We all have high hopes for our kids and dreams of what they could be, and they all start out as these helpless little babies that you just hold in your hands, and then you just have no idea what they're going to grow up to be or who they're going to grow up to become, but they do. We, they grow up, they become whoever they are. But this was no ordinary baby. This was the Son of God, the Messiah. And yet God chose an ordinary woman to bring him into the world. There's nothing special about Mary. I mean, she was special, but she was, she was ordinary. She was uh, a sinner just like the rest of us. She wasn't perfect, but she was willing. She was full of humility and full of trust to what God had. She was the perfect person to raise the Messiah. But for you moms in the room in particular, can you imagine having your child be the Messiah? Like they're actually perfect. They're sinless. And some of our kids maybe like to think they're perfect or more perfect than you are. That's not necessarily true, right? Your, your child is the Messiah. He's actually perfect. I don't know if that would make parenting easier or more difficult. Maybe a bit of both. How in the world do you go about that? Her son was literally the son of God. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was fully God, fully divine. And yet at the same time, he's fully human. And he had to learn all of those things and grow up just like any other child and become a grown adult man just like anybody else. I like to think that Mary and Joseph had something to do with how Jesus turned out. After all, they were his parents. They trained him and they, they taught him all of those things and raised him up in the ways of God. But how do you parent a kid who's more perfect than you are? I don't know. I'm, I'm grateful that none of us have to worry about that. Since becoming a dad the last couple of years, there's a lot that I've learned, but I think one of the things that I've really taken away is that there is no more difficult job in the world than to be a mom. And so kudos to all you moms out there. Dads, we have it easy, or easier, I should say. And I don't care what your job is, I don't care what you do for work or how difficult it is, being a mom is the hardest job in the world. And yet, it's probably also the most rewarding. And can you imagine, as Mary, being not just any mother, but the mother to the Messiah? 
What a blessing and an honor and a privilege that is that nobody else in history has ever experienced. And yet, that difficult reality to face, those high expectations, what's demanded of you. You have those moments where you feel like you're failing as a parent. Imagine how Mary and Joseph felt. Jesus is 12 and they lost him in Jerusalem for three days. Like, I, it's, that's high expectations. But as Mary is faced with these realities that she is walking into, she responds with trust. Okay, God, whatever you have for me, I trust you. And she responds in worship. As we continue on in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46, this song that Mary sings, Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned. Mary responds in trust to what God is asking of her. She responds in worship, worshiping the God who has given her this opportunity, the God who she's carrying in her womb. And even though Mary doesn't understand the full gravity of what is going on here and who her son would grow up to be and what he would have to endure someday, she gets it. She believes God. She trusts him. She trusts in what he's doing in the ways that he's at work. She knows there's something special about her son. After all, you look at the extraordinary, miraculous happenings that have been taking place already for her. She knows God is at work in this. And her response is to worship. It's to glorify, to magnify the Lord. She sees the majesty and the power and the goodness of God on display in and through her. She knows that what he is doing is going to bring about life and salvation for the world. She surrenders to whatever God might have for her and her family. And she realizes how humbling it is that for some reason, God chose her. She has this amazing opportunity to mother the Messiah. Now, many of us are familiar with the story of the birth of Jesus, and we're not going to look into it too deeply today. We definitely will at some point this Christmas season. But just imagine what it must have been like for Mary as she held her newborn baby Jesus. There in that smelly stable with the animals making noises and she's holding this, this baby, this boy who is the Messiah. He's the son of God. He is the savior of the world. That name Jesus means he saves because Jesus would save his people from their sins. As with any parent of a newborn child, I have to imagine that she's sitting there holding Jesus and she can't look away. She is just staring at him because it is just too perfect and beautiful. There's nothing else that you want to look at than that baby, than that child. Because of what a blessing, what a gift they are, this little miracle of life, this perfect little human. You just can't help it. This gift, this responsibility that's been given to you. Imagine as Mary is sitting there holding her son, wondering what the future will hold. Do you ever wonder what she was thinking in that moment? 
She turned her eyes upon Jesus and, and worshiped. But do you think she knew what would come? That one day this little baby boy would grow up and he would be this incredible man of God and he would uh, call people to follow after him and he would set a, a good, perfect, sinless, godly example for us to follow. Uh, she must have been so proud of her son as she watched him grow in the ways that he followed after God. But it wasn't all good. It wasn't all easy. Do you think in that moment holding her newborn baby that she knew that someday he would be accused and hated and beaten and mocked and scorned and wrongly crucified for something that he didn't deserve? As a parent, there are going to be painful moments that we have to endure of watching our kids suffer, whether because of the consequence of a choice or even something they don't necessarily deserve. But for Mary to watch her son be nailed to a cross, to die the most brutal of deaths, something he did not at all deserve, that must have been so gut-wrenching watching that. But she knew who he was. She knew who her son was. She knew before anybody that he was the Messiah, that he would save his people from their sins. She knew the truth when the world was speaking lies. She believed in who he was, and she was there with him until the end, there to watch her own son be killed on a cross. What we learn from Mary is that turning our eyes upon Jesus is a response of trust as we believe in who he is and we trust what God is doing. It's a response of worship as we give him the glory and all the praise for all that he is doing. But turning our eyes upon Jesus is also a response of humble surrender as we are with Jesus, as we follow him even into death. She was with Jesus into that moment, but she was also with Jesus when he was resurrected from the grave. She was with him through the highs and the lows. Luke 9.23, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. It's a daily choice that we have to deny self. It's death to self. It's not about me and my selfishness and my pride, Jesus. It's about you. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2, he writes to the Galatian church, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. We have to identify with Jesus in his death. And what is so great about that is when we die to self, when we trust in who he is, when we recognize that he died on that cross in our place for our sins, for your sins, and for my sins, we also get to identify with Jesus in that resurrection and that new life that he has brought about through his death and resurrection. It's that response of trust. Jesus, I trust you. I believe you. I believe that you're good, that you are perfect, that you were sinless, that you died the death that I deserved. Jesus, I want to worship you for who you are. And I want to surrender to who you are and to what you've done for me. Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you are my Savior. That is what it's all about. Last week, Pastor Gerton shared with us about miracles and how, most importantly, the miracle that life is, not just the physical life 
that we experience, but also the spiritual life, the eternal life that we get to experience as followers of Jesus because of his life, death, and resurrection. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have a relationship with him, you are a walking miracle because you've been brought from death to life and from darkness to light. And it all started with that first cry, that newborn baby as he would grow up to become a savior of the world. And so today we have the opportunity as we continue in worship to remember what Jesus did for us, not just in coming to this earth and being born a baby, but also in taking that with him to the cross. Dying on the cross for our sins and resurrecting from the grave, we have the opportunity to partake in the Lord's Supper today, which is just about remembering what Jesus has done for us as he gave his body and his blood for us. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. You'll notice maybe as you walked in that there are stations around the back of the room and as well as here in the front. And I just invite you, uh, as you, just in the, in the quiet, as the music plays, to just quiet yourself before the Lord. To reflect on this baby, Jesus, on who he is and what he's done for you. We have open communion here, which just means that if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, we invite you to join with us in communion. There are double stacked cups. Make sure you get both cups, or there's also prepackaged as well. And so whenever you're ready, you feel like you have your heart in a good place to remember what Jesus has done for you, I invite you to go to whichever station is closest, to grab the elements and to return to your seat, and then we'll partake together.
received from the Lord, but I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, thank you for your body that you came for us. Jesus, thank you that you saw fit to take on flesh, to humble yourself, to come to this earth, to become one of us, fully human, and yet also fully God. Jesus, thank you for your body that you sacrificed for us, giving your life so that we too could have life in you. Take and eat. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Jesus thank you for your blood that was spilled for us Jesus thank you that you were willing to go to that cross to take our place that you saw fit to do whatever it took, no matter what it demanded of you. Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you praise today. Take a drink. So what does it look like for you in this season to turn your eyes upon Jesus? It means trust. It means no matter what is going on in your life, and trusting that, surrendering that to God. He's in control of it. He's with you in that. Whatever God is doing in your life, he's doing for a reason, and it is a part of his plan and his purpose and his timing, and it's going to be better than you could even imagine. He's going to use it for good. It means worship, that we find ourselves responding in worship to who Jesus is and to what he's done. What better time to do that than the Christmas season? And that daily we are dying to self to choose Jesus, to surrender ourselves to him. And so as you go about this Christmas season, it's so easy to get caught up in the chaos and the busyness and the hustle and bustle of all of it. But what is it really all about? It's about this baby, Jesus, who was born how can we turn our eyes upon Jesus in this season? How can we view Jesus like a newborn baby, filled with love for who he is, with pride of who he is, filled with awe and wonder of who this baby is and would grow to become, that all we want to do is spend time with him, to be with him, to adore him. my challenge to you this Christmas season, church, that you would cherish Jesus. I think of what Mary said in Luke chapter 2, Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. Take time to ponder, to treasure, and to just reflect on this wonderful Savior, baby Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness, your mercy, and your love. Thank you that we have the opportunity to celebrate you in this season as we remember your birth, 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 as we remember
the only time of year that we the only time of year that we celebrate who you are, that we celebrate Jesus. You deserve, Jesus, our universe deserves far more worship than me.